They're just going to stand here while I preach. It'll be perfect. It's their first awkward moment with us as a church. Uh, If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Romans 8? Uh, As you can tell, we are already experiencing the good of the gifts from this new group of new members. And uh, we look forward to just seeing more and more fruit of that in the days ahead. And I think I heard the voice of Ron Starks speaking to Miss Gracia, telling her to sing out more. And I affirm that, brother. I walked back and I had just a moment with the band before I I came out here and I just said, y'all, those harmonies at the end is like, okay, so let's just work through some references, right? It's like Heim level, Maggie Rogers level from today. If you go back to my day, that'd been like uh, Point of Grace, Wilson Phillips level harmonies, right? I mean, we're just blessed as a church. Uh, If you need to go back a little further, maybe the Lennon sisters from Lawrence Welk, I don't know. I don't know what serves you best, but uh, we just want to say thanks for being here. Maybe we should get to Romans 8 sooner rather than later. How about that? Let's start in verse 12 together. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we realize at the outset how desperately we need your spirit to bring this passage, these five verses alone to life in our own hearts and daily experience. And so we say we look to you now for strength, for minds, to be informed well by your word, for eyes to see clearly, for ears to hear, for hearts to be changed and softened towards your spirit's still small voice. Lord, there's a declaration in here that means that some in this room may have to get to see beyond earthly experiences to be able to experience your heavenly good. And so, Spirit, I ask for you to play the role of comforter today. Help us to see you as Abba, Father. More than anything today, we want to know you more. We want to experience your goodness more fully. And we want to be able to, by the power of your Spirit, live these passages for your glory. So we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I just want to give a brief review. I told you that in this month, we're going to slow down, and throughout the month of May, we're going to be going through the book of Romans, uh, eight, uh, chapter 8, the chapter 8 of Romans. And so we've been in the book of Romans for some time, but we're kind of slowing down in this particular passage 
And I want to build on some themes that Paul introduced last week that we're going to do a little bit of review on this week, and then there's going to be a bit of an introduction on what Christian will be preaching from next Sunday for Mother's Day. So last week, we talked about some key themes. We, we began in Romans 8, and we saw that sin's power is broken through the Holy Spirit working in us. When we are saved, we are given the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us, giving us power to overcome sin. What kind of sin is being overcome? Well, it's the sin that we have been forgiven of. And we have been saved from the lifelong decay of sin and death. We have been called into a covenant relationship with the triune God. And this is amazing for us to consider. It's amazing that we've been called into this relationship. But what we're going to be talking about as it relates to the covenant and the relationship. You'll, you'll hear some familiar terms today that are covenantal. Covenant blessings, covenant benefits that come with things that, that are relational, that we can be children of God and cry out, Abba, Father. It's a covenant relationship. It's both things together. And we experience the blessing and the good of that. There are both blessing and curses that come with covenants. If you want to learn a bit more about covenants, I know that, that Christian is covering that right now in the GROW class that started this morning. On the story of redemption, you can join that Grow class Sunday mornings. Uh, I saw his notes this week. They're wonderful. They, they, they kind of dive into the issue of covenant quite a bit more than what we would typically on a Sunday morning. And that's to our benefit. But today we're going to see, let's begin here. We're going to see that we fight sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. We fight sin with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we see this beginning in verse 12 where it says this. So then, brothers... We are debtors. Now, your, your translation may there say the word, oblig, uh, we have a new obligation. We have this obligation. There, there are several ways that that is, is translated out. It's kind of rendered through the translations and different uh, translations of the Bible. But so then, brothers, ESV says we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Verse 13 goes on to say, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now there's a key theme that's being introduced here. Theologically, the term would be mortification. And, and really what that means is, is putting sin to death. Mortification, putting sin to death. But, but I want to, before we kind of get to that key theme, I want to build on something here. It, it's interesting to see the word debtors used in verse 12. Now, instantly, those who may have grown up around the church or, or been here for some time, you may think of a, a hymn like a debtor to mercy alone. A debtor to mercy alone. And, and how is it that we're saying that we are called to this freedom in Christ and yet we're indebted to something? That, that seems to kind of speak out of both sides of the mouth. And, and, and I want us to think about what Paul is building on here. He's building on our understanding of the grace of God for changing in our lives. That, that there is some sort of change that is happening. It, there is a radical transformation at the moment of salvation. And then there is walking out this salvation. Living our lives for the glory of God. Continuing to change in this what we have called and defined in weeks uh, prior to this progressive sanctification, that there is this sanctification, this setting apart of our lives for His glory that is happening in an ongoing way. 
But it's interesting that he uses obligation or debtor in his language. See, this is not an obligation or a debt to earn something. We're not purchasing something on our own behalf where it's like, oh, I, I see. This is, like, this is like an MLM relationship. I, I see how this works. Where you're kind of fronting me salvation, and then I have to earn it for myself. No, that's, that's not what happens here. Let me put it this way. If, if someone saved your life, you, you were walking out into the street, and somebody kind of grabbed you back and saved your life in that instant, you would feel indebted to them. But it would be this type of, it would be a debt of gratitude. It would be a debt of gratitude because you recognize you were in a place of peril. You could not save yourself and someone reached in the last moment and pulled you back to safety. And on an eternal and a cosmic scale, that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. A work that he alone can do. Something that he alone could see. Something that he alone could accomplish on our behalf in his sinless perfection. And so what do we owe? Well, we owe a debt of gratitude. Anything that we do is not because we have to. If I were to turn back to that person and say, oh, I want to pledge my life to you now, right? I mean, we see this kind of in movies sometimes where it's almost like they, they pledge their lives to this individual. And, and, and it's easy when we see it in fantasy to, to not think about how that actually can apply to the Christian life but it does. We are pledging out of a debt of gratitude, not because we have to, but because we want to. It's something that is coming from our heart because we realize the goodness of this salvation. That's the kind of indebtedness. That's the kind of obligation that we have as Christians. We don't owe God. We could never repay Him, but we want to please Him. We want to live for him, and that's not because it makes us right with him, but it's because he has made us right with himself. He has done the work. So we are not indebted to the flesh. We are under no obligation to it. No, we are debtors now to mercy alone. Now, verse 13 is going to go on to show us as it relates to mortification that we are called to put to death the deeds of the body. If you're not familiar with the theological concept of mortification, I, I would encourage you to read the works of John Owen as it relates to this subject matter. If this is new for you, though, and, and this is where we want to equip you to live the Christian life, kind of even beyond and study for yourself, uh, even beyond this Sunday morning, I've got an article that I'm going to link to from the Gospel Coalition that I think does a, a good job, a, a very helpful introductory study to the works of John Owen and mortification of sin. It's going to be a bit beyond what we're able to get into today, but we want to provide resources like this for you as a church because we don't want you to see these things in Scripture, but study them more deeply. Well, just take my word for it. Study them for yourselves and grow in your understanding of and grow in your experiencing the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's word. Perhaps a simple definition would help us to start, though, and this comes from the article. Mortification comes from the Latin for death and to do. So death to do. In this sense, it has to do with putting something to death. Perhaps more literally, it is to make dead. Mortification is to make dead. 
Now, as believers, as those who are called to follow Christ as the only way for salvation, we have a responsibility to participate in putting sin to death in our lives. Paul has reminded us of our part earlier in the book of Romans, and we we saw this a few weeks ago when he was telling us not to present ourselves to opportunities to sin. Don't go back to presenting yourselves to things that you once did. Now, what follows is a bit of a longer quote from me. It's going to also be online with my notes and links and references for you, but, but it's found in the book that we recommended earlier in this series titled A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. There's a reason I wanted to kind of use this to summarize these concepts. Remember, we're looking at what it means to put to death the deeds of the body. And I think Milton Vincent does a good job in this quote of kind of capturing a lot of different scripture verses that instruct us on what it is that the Holy Spirit does in, for, and through us so that we understand what is available to us in this empowering assurance That we're looking at here in Romans chapter 8. All right, so let's read together. The key to mortifying fleshly lusts is to eliminate the emptiness within me and replace it with fullness. And I accomplish this by feasting on the gospel. Indeed, it is the gospel that I experience a, a God who glorifies himself by filling me with his fullness. He is the one, Paul says, who fills all in all in Ephesians 1.22. He is the one who fills all things with the gifts he gives, Ephesians 4. And he lavishes gospel blessings upon me with that goal, that I be filled up to all the fullness of God from Ephesians 4. This is the God of the gospel. A God who is satisfied with nothing less than my experience of fullness in him. The first command spoke in the garden was, eat freely in Genesis 2. And with similar insistence, he says to me now from Ephesians 5, be filled. What happens to my appetites for sin when I am filled with the fullness of God in Christ? Jesus provides the answer. He, continually, he who continually comes to me will never hunger or thirst again, John 6. Indeed, as I perpetually feast on Christ and of all his blessings found in the gospel, I find that my hunger for sin diminishes and the lies of lust simply lose their appeal. Hence, to the degree that I am full, I am free. Eyes do not rove, nor fleshly lusts rule when the heart is fat with the love of Jesus. What is your heart fat with this morning, church? It was at this point that Christian spoke into my notes this week and said, I think this would be a great place for you to share a personal illustration. I think this would be a great place for you to shut up. No. Uh, he, he typed it to me, so I couldn't say that back. That was my first draft. So I was challenged with this. I was challenged with this on a number of ways. One, that I would continually be at a place where I am mortifying sin in my own life. A number of failings came to mind first. You ever have that experience? You sit in a community group, somebody asks a question, and you're just like, well, I only know the wrong ways to do this. Because you feel like you're supposed to share out of your victory and not out of what you're actually walking through. 
That's not what community groups exist for. I'm thankful that as a church, that's not what you expect of me, is sinless perfection. We have one Savior, and I look to him just like you do. So I asked Stephanie, be careful when you ask a question like that out loud to a family member, because they'll answer you. I was grateful that she had an answer. We were walking around Walmart Thursday night after the, after the family meeting, and I thought, well, this is a safe public space. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> it was kind of, I, I was mulling it over in my mind, and I just asked her, I said, what, what do you, where do you, where is it that you see me putting sin to death, that there's an active battle that's going on, that I'm not disengaged from it and just kind of like giving in, but that you're seeing change, and we've got some years together that she would know where there's been change, and she would know where there hasn't been change, and yet she walks with me anyway. And here's what she said. It actually is a conversation that regularly happens in our parenting, well, maybe more specifically my parenting. Specifically, where I am more interested in immediate results at the heart, at the cost of the heart of our children. Now, now I want to be careful here. I don't want to say anything flippantly that comes across as dismissive or miscommunicates anything because of the brief time that we have here. So if, if I share anything that you have a question about, please know that there's an open door to ask. Uh, actually, that's true anytime. Just come and ask. Uh, so that there's no miscommunication on my part or misunderstanding. But I want us to remember, Paul is instructing us in verse 13 to put to death the deeds of the body. That can include our thoughts, our reactions, rather than responding rightly, our words, our looks, and, and so on. So there are moments that can come up in parenting where I can be tempted by my thoughts running away with my own perspective on how a situation should be going. The the, the circumstances that we're walking in, or don't you know how much I've, I've paid for us to be here, or, or don't you know what we've sacrificed over the years to get to this point? And so my, my perspective is being informed by all of these things. Sometimes it's even good things like, hey, we've been talking about this. I want to help you change and grow. But the fruit that is ultimately born out of those moments is the bad fruit of anger. It's harshness. It's uncommunicated expectations. And I think you're hearing the things that like are relational erosion at, at its finest. I don't want to parent this way. I've, I've never wanted to parent this way, and yet it's been a struggle. My kids know this about me, and you'll notice that I'm not sharing any of their particular stories. They have their stories of these moments when all of a sudden they realize dad's 6'5 and 300 pounds. They know these moments, and, and perhaps in your home you know the moments as well where the temperature in the room changes like that. And this has been a struggle. But here's what Stephanie told me when I so boldly asked her. She said she's seen me actively putting that to death. I was actually a bit shocked. But she said she sees me actively putting to death the use of anger and parenting in our home that there's a measurable difference that she can see. 
Now, I, I was grateful to hear this because this has been an over 20-year battle for me. She's been helping me see this all along. She's been helping me grow in this area. The Holy Spirit has, has been doing the same, the, the, both working to help process what's going on in my mind and my heart for over two decades, and it's been helpful. We've learned together in our marriage throughout this time that the best way we can be for one another in battling sin, well, first of all, it's actually to be for one another, right? Let, let's just talk about that for a second. I am dealing with this sin and I have those around me to help me with that. Can in the church this be where we just kind of like, not erode, but just do away with this rugged individualism of our faith? We are not called to live in these silos that once I get my act together, we're good in community. No, this community helps me get my act together for the glory of God. That's what the church is called to, and that's what we are talking about in terms of the benefit. I have experienced the benefit of that in parenting. We've also had a desire through the years to have a, a fruitful life together, something where we recognize the, the, that is filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And working to, together to live in this way, we have found it helpful that the clearest communication we have with one another whether she's confronting me on something or I am working to kind of confess in those moments like I'm not angry but I need to tell you what I'm thinking right now so that you can help me kind of like reorder my thoughts. Kind of admitting what's going on without it being this thing of, well, now we're adding this another, another layer of this conflict. We have found it helpful for the clearest communication where there's no room for misunderstanding to talk around biblical categories. Yes, I have feelings. I have thoughts. We as a couple have feelings. She has feelings. She has thoughts. But our desire has always been in our home to bring those feelings and bring those thoughts into alignment with Scripture. Especially in the midst of mortifying sin. So can I stand here as one who can, who can say, it's not done, but it can be done? That active battle for me is not done, but mortifying sin can be done. This is my testimony of it. What's yours? What's that area that God or a friend or a spouse or a loved one is bringing clarity to what it is that he's after in your heart? When I think about this illustration held up against some of the language we just read in the, in the Vincent quote related to eliminating the emptiness in me with the fullness of Christ, that there was this image that popped in my head this week as I was preparing and that was a dinner that represents what, it, what my heart is truly feasting on in those moments. And I thought about it this way. When I am struggling, when there's kind of that slippery slope toward anger, here's kind of what it feels like. It's like this three-course meal, and it has this appetizer of my own perspective or my own perception or my own preference. And there's like this dinner roll sitting there of my convenience. Carbs are convenient. Then we get to the main course, my anger. There's like this side dish of a lack of self-control, another side dish of impatience. 
And then there's the desert of my way or the highway. So let me ask you again. What is your heart feasting on today? What's the three-course meal that leads up to those thoughts, those actions, those words, those emotions that Christ wants to bring under his lordship by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is your heart and mind growing obese with the things of the world, stuffed with things that don't satisfy our cravings or longings for more? Or is it fat with the love of Jesus? Is it filled to the full and even overflowing with the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is your heart overflowing out of a desire to serve others through the gifts that God, who is the source and the purpose of those gifts, freely gives to us? These are some questions that we have to wrestle around. And there's such good news for us here in 8.13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you want to know what part of the abundant life that we're called to is? It's putting to death the deeds of the body. So this is how we fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to assume we're all going to need more time there. And that's okay. That's why those resources are, are going to be available online for you. Community groups, I would encourage this being a part of your conversation. This is how we fight sin through the power of the Spirit, a power that is able to help us put to death the things of the flesh, filling us anew with the fullness of God in Christ Jesus. Next, we're going to see that our assurance is empowered for this, to have childlike affection toward our Father. Let's look at Romans 8, starting at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Can I just pause there for a moment? In the original language, the reason it's rendered as sons is a universal, like, y'all, right? It was masculine in the Greek, so it's rendered in the same way that it was. He is talking to the church universal, right? Sons and daughters is, is probably how you'll hear me refer to it here on out. I just want to be clear as to why. You did not receive that spirit. You received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And we're going to see two more key themes here. We started with mortification. We're going to see a a key theme of adoption, the doctrine of adoption. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's tied to our assurance. It's tied to being also the second theme that we'll see, an heir with Christ. So in verse 15, we see that the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, under Roman law at the time, a father could disown his biological child. What a dangerous relational weapon. You know, unfortunately, we too often see this even today, where people do this relationally. Even if they don't take the actual steps to document it legally, we see families walk through these types of struggles. People pushed aside, moved out of the way for our own thoughts, desires, goals, dreams, expectations. The list can really go on, right? 
But as it relates to our faith in this world, Adam as our father will not ultimately draw us near. It's only through Christ that we can draw near to our Father's throne of grace for confidence. Not only to our King, yes, yes, God is our King, but He is also our Father. Now, it's too close to May 4th to be saying stuff like this. But God is our Father. If we think back to the culture in Rome, a father could disown his child only if they were a biological child. But a father could adopt a child And under the authority of Roman law, a child who had been adopted could never be disowned. I'm just going to pause and let that sink in for you as it relates to the work of Christ on your behalf. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is how Paul starts off this book of Romans. Because he knows this is the assurance that he has. A child adopted can never be disowned. The father, in order to adopt that child, was responsible to pay all of the debts that were owed. Do you hear the gospel starting to come out here? Is it lighting up in your mind and in your heart in a way that just says, this is amazing? This isn't just Paul as this good, like, turner of phrases, working some kind of grammatical magic. This is the Spirit of God bringing and empowering an assurance for you and for me today to understand that those who have been adopted can never be disowned. That all of the debts that we owe have been paid. That's what God the Father through His Son Jesus Christ has done. That's what the Holy Spirit comes alongside us and says, look at this work. It's for you. You can live in the good and the benefit of that. And as this new member of the family, that adopted child would have all of the rights all of the benefits, all of the privileges of sonship. If that's what adoption looked like in Rome, how much more does it look like for us as those who are now adopted into the kingdom of God by our Heavenly Father? It points us directly to our relationship to God as Father. Jesus Christ has paid all of our debts. The wages our sins earned that left us in arrears to righteousness. That debt has been paid now. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Abba. Father. Why wasn't Dad or, or, or Father or Papa? Why wasn't that enough? Well, Abba. In the Greek, it's, it's transliteration for between Greek and English of this Aramaic word for father. It's only used two other times in Scripture. In Galatians 4, 6, the Holy Spirit uses it when he says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. What does that do? Well, it points us to a relationship that is intimate with one another. It's an intimacy of relationship. It's not some sort of infancy in faith. It's intimacy. 
Jesus himself used it in Gethsemane. Abba, Father. Mark 14, 36 says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Notice that Paul doesn't have us cry out, I'm God's child. Instead, we cry out, Abba, Father. What's the difference? He calls us to look away from ourselves and cry out to the one that established the relationship and then fulfilled what was needed to secure it. Look away from yourself today and look to the one who establishes and fulfills. Perhaps we could think of it this way. We're not called to live with this, do you know who I am kind of mentality. That would be exhausting. That would be exhausting to live up to. Trying even just to live up to ourselves, let alone God's standards. No, we're not called to this, do you know who I am, but do you know who my heavenly dad is mentality. I don't know your experience with your earthly dad. My dad's a good dad. He wasn't perfect, but he's a good dad. He's a good man. I watched him grow and change over the years. That was a blessing for me as a son to see. It gave me hope in my own parenting, to be honest with you. As a dad, I'm not perfect. I'm not called to be, yet I can grieve in repentance so much, praying that God gets me out of the way of my kids' thoughts about God himself as their perfect heavenly father. What are the blessings, what are the privileges that come from being a son or daughter in covenant relationship with a heavenly father? Verse 17 tells us that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 17 looks at specifically at the privileges of being a child of God. It says you are fellow heirs with Christ. We are his inheritance as we saw a few weeks ago and we share in the inheritance of the work that he did on the cross. We looked at Romans earlier in the parable of the man who sells all of his possessions to buy a field with found treasure. We are the treasure and we share in the treasure of Jesus Christ. That's a privilege of being an heir. But we're also told that we will suffer with him. And you may think, how in the world is that a blessing? How is that a privilege? Like you've already had to deal with this with debtor. Now it's a blessing to suffer. And this isn't a thank you, may I have another mentality, right? Because we're not subjecting ourselves to the law. We're not subjecting ourselves to our ability to accomplish something. No, we are seeing that the covenant of grace is at work in full effect. And we respond out of the kindness. We respond to the kindness of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, Paul says this, We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We will never be disowned. Struck down, but not destroyed. This verse shows us that through suffering, whether it's mental physical, emotional, spiritual, through suffering in any way. And each of those are ways that we can suffer. This isn't going to become a sermon on suffering. But oftentimes when suffering comes, it comes with like several of these at once, doesn't it? Though we are afflicted in every way, we are not destroyed. Suffering 
is a privilege because we will be glorified with him. Either we have suffered or we will suffer with Jesus until we're with Jesus in glory. And in closing today, I just want to look at this to help us maybe understand. Again, Christian's going to kind of develop this out. Happy Mother's Day. It's a message on suffering. Uh, Not entirely, not entirely. (laughs) Come back. We have donuts. Uh, Worst invitation ever. I'm sorry. Our whole Connect team is like, Chris, why do you talk? We suffer because we will be glorified with him. We're being made into the image of Christ through our suffering. It's a battleground for our soul is what's happening. In making us more like Christ, suffering prepares us for whatever ministry we've been called to or uniquely designed by God for. I was listening to a podcast called The World and Everything in it a few weeks ago, and I've linked to it online. And there was a story on there about Dr. Paul Brand, who was working off of the research on leprosy, which is now called Hansen's disease, because of the man who was originally researching it. And Dr. Paul Brand says this, thank God for pain. Paul. Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul Brand. Earthly man. Thank God for pain. If I had only one gift I could give my leprosy patients, it would be the gift of pain. Now, I had never heard a doctor thank God for the gift of pain. It almost seems like it's one of the first parts of the Hippocratic Oath, right? Do no harm. I mean, that's certainly one rendering of it from the Greek. I I do understand that medical institutions use multiple renderings from the original Greek, but we oftentimes will think of it as like, do no harm. Like, get the pain meds in me fast. At least that's my mentality because I'm a wuss when it comes to pain. And Dr. Paul Brand is saying, thank God for pain. See, leprosy, it's, it's now curable. It's, it's a disease of bacteria growing on the skin, and it deadens the pain receptors in the nerves. Many think that limbs are lost only because of the decay that comes from leprosy, and it's actually the result of the lack of pain where the patient is regularly harming the same area and doesn't know it. So without any sensation of pain, there's the loss of a digit. There's a loss of a limb. It got me thinking about Mark 1 where Jesus heals a leper. Mark 1, 40 says this. And a leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling to him said, If you will, can you make me clean? Lord, I just pray now you would make us humble like this man. Mark 1.41, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched the leper and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately leprosy left him. And he was made clean. The leper the outcast in society, literally, physically cast out of the city, comes to Jesus so that he might be cleansed. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus gives him his cleansing and restores him to his community. He has a new life. 
And after this great miracle, where do you find Jesus? Well, he's alone. He is now himself in the desolate places. He has become the outcast. The leper and Jesus Christ have traded places. The outsider brought in. This is the chosen one is cast out. For those who have ears today, hear this. Take this to heart today. Maybe you'll hear it for the first time. And the Holy Spirit wants to help you see for the first time this marvelous Savior that we have. But church, let's hear together. Because the Son was forsaken by His Father, we are adopted as sons and daughters into the household of God. The Spirit empowering us to know God as our Father. Heirs with the one who laid down His life to save us. For us to be made clean, Christ became unclean. This uncleanness that is taking on our sin through the cross wasn't something that Jesus was going to shy away from. He conquered it fully. Not stopping, the, not stopping there, not just conquering it. He traded places with it for our benefit and for his glory. And he now offers this gift to those of us willing to humble ourselves and say, cleanse me. And to that, hear the Savior's reply today in the same way it was to that leper so many years ago. I will be clean. See, Jesus goes beyond the surface in our lives. He goes beyond the points of pain in our circumstances or suffering. He, he ministers the salve of the gospel to hearts that are hurting from the brokenness and sin that we encounter and the brokenness and sin that we produce. This is how we begin to understand how it is that the gospel uses our suffering to make us more and more like Jesus, the one who has traded places with you and with me. He ministers to us through our pain, leading to more and more glory, not for ourselves, but for him in our lives. And what does he do all the while? He makes us clean sanctified so this morning church know this we can fight sin with the power of the holy spirit and have childlike affection toward our father this is the empowered assurance that paul helps us understand in romans 8 12 through 17 would you stand with me now